Good morning and welcome. I'm wondering how many of you uh, served at Camp Calvary this last week? Can we see a show of hands? Would you people stand up? There were about 120 that served, and we just want to say thank you. <clears throat> um, they all may seem a little phasic because their, their emotions are shot, but... Um, we're hoping that a good night's, a few nights rest will help them get back in shape. We have actually a youth retreat uh, taking place at Blue Creek uh, this next Monday. So some of the people, Bob and Drew and others, are heading up there. Diane are heading up there right away to start that, right in the tail end of this retreat. So pray for them that God would give them great strength and energy. That's one of the things that we'll be talking about more. Um, we're actually looking at working towards a men's retreat in September at Blue Creek as well. Uh, part of the thing is that we're, we're working on a, developing a partnership with Blue Creek where we'll begin to become more involved in developing their program and things that are uh, helping to develop their facilities. So, but we'll be giving you more information about that as those things firm up. But today we're going to continue our study through the Sermon on the Mount. We're in chapter seven. Uh, Matthew's Gospel, and I want to begin reading in verse 15. Uh, we find that last week, Jesus kind of took, went from a very positive aspect of loving your neighbor to then talking about beware of going through the wide gate that leads destruction, instead follow the narrow gate. This time he moves us even further into what we might call negative territory, where he talks about not only going through the wrong gate, but following the wrong person through the wrong gate. But why don't we begin by reading this passage together. If you don't mind, will you stand with me? Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 15, and the text reads as follows. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we continue in your word that your Holy Spirit would continue to open our eyes, our ears, and most importantly, our understanding, that we would be people whose personal wills and desires would be surrendered to you, Lord, that we could pray as you've taught us to pray, not my will, but your will be done. So God, we just pray that you would give us insight, help us to clearly not only know the truth, but to recognize when something is in error as well, that we might turn from that and follow you instead. We pray for this help, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It's almost like a Jesus in the middle of this message is pasting a, or posting a great big bright flashing caution sign when he opens with this word, it's just one word in Greek, prosecho, which says, watch out. And you almost like basically would say, danger ahead. Uh, it's variously rendered in different versions as be constantly on your guard or be very careful. Uh, and what we're supposed to be watching for and be careful of is to look out for false prophets. I love the way one modern version puts it. It says, be wary 
of false preachers who smile a lot, dripping with practiced sincerity. Ten more times we find in the gospel Jesus offers this same warning about those who would come and present themselves as speaking for God, but in fact have so infiltrated that message with their own selfish desires or ambitions that their message becomes patently a corruption. This is, uh, this is the reason, and the reason that Jesus was so concerned about that we're told in places like Matthew 24, 4, he said, watch out that no one deceives you. The word deceive here, planao in the Greek, literally means to lead some away, someone away from the truth and into the way of error. Be careful that someone doesn't lead you into error. Later on in Mark 13, 22, he tells us why. For false Christs, and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive. They'll do signs and miracles to deceive. And there's a lot that the Jesus and other writers had to say about falling into the trap of following somebody because of a sign, a miracle, or a wonder, because oftentimes those are fraudulent. Either they're manufactured and don't, didn't really happen, or else simply they're operating in a power other than the power of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that every book of the New Testament, with the exception of the tiny little book of Philemon, really Philemon is nothing more than a brief letter from Paul to that, that man who's addressed, but they all contain similar warnings, and often in much more greater detail than even Jesus gave. For example, when Paul is speaking prophetically, uh, he uses graphic descriptive language to the elders in Ephesus as he's on his way to Jerusalem. He said to them in the 20th chapter of Acts, he says, after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort, literally meaning to misinterpret or misapply the word of God, misapply the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. In other words, it reminds me of uh, one very famous uh, uh, speaker who's on TBN, I don't want to mention Benny Hinn's name, but teaching in, a set, in one teaching session saying, you know, uh, most of you think that the Trinity is only three persons, but I'm here to tell you today that the Trinity is nine persons. There's three persons of the Father, three persons of the Son, three persons of the Holy Spirit. Of course, you can't find that any place in the Bible, but this has come according to him by personal revelation. And then he went on and explained why this new revelation came. He said, you don't come here to hear the old truth. You want to hear new truth. Now, truth is not something that can be old or new. It can be true or false, but it can't be old or new. It's a misapplication of the terminology. Essentially, he could have just as well been saying, you don't come here to hear the truth. You come to hear a lie because that's essentially what it is. It's a basis of something that's untrue. But oftentimes people in these high profile roles feel a necessity, a competitive necessity to always be on the cutting edge of what's happening now. And so they're constantly coming up with new dimensions, new miracles, new types of shticks, if you will, because they're more performers than they are pastors. They're more about plundering your goods than they are preaching the gospel. That's why Paul, writing to the Romans in the 16th chapter, as he ended that great book, he said, I urge you, brothers, to watch out, here again, the same phrase, watch out for those who cause divisions 
and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And then he adds, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive, literally they seduce people, they seduce the minds, he says, of naive people. Now, naive means simply somebody who is simple. They don't, they're unsuspecting, who fear no evil will ever come to them from other persons. They simply don't distrust anyone. And we make a, such a big deal about, well, we need to be trusting of other people. And I would say, <clears throat> we need to be gracious and loving and accepting of other people, but Jesus didn't trust people. In fact, in the end of chapter two of John's gospel, it says Jesus entrusted himself to no man because he knew what was in every man. In other words, Jesus certainly knew that I have a sin nature. And if, he just, if God or anybody else just blindly trusts in me, that's going to be an error. That's why essentially we're told to live our Christian life not in isolation but in community because in community we have those checks and balances where when we get kind of off base, somebody is saying, brother, I think you're out of order here or you're out of place or I think you're misunderstanding or, or you don't know what you're talking about. Not a pleasant experience to have, but an absolutely essential part because none of us has absolute ownership of the truth. We all can be wrong about something, but ultimately, as we'll see, it's not about personal opinion, it's about the Word of God. To Timothy, Paul further added in his second letter to him, he says, for the time will come when men will put away or will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to see what their itching ears want to hear. I don't know if we're living in the time specifically that Paul was pro prophesying would come, but it sure does fit. In fact, our age is almost tailor-made for this very warning because we live in the age where people have the opportunity to not only gather around ideas or teachings or philosophies that suit their desires rather than God's, but also it, it becomes almost a mark of spiritual maturity to have your own opinions about the truths of God, even if they don't really line up with the Word of God. You see, Peter and John also expressed some similar concerns when they said, and Peter said in 2 Peter 2, he says, there will be false teachers among you, and they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. And many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. And then he adds, in their greed, these teachers will exploit you with made-up stories. In other words, they will have these false, exaggerated testimonies of the wonderful miracles that they have performed. I remember one time a, a, a particular evangelist talking about how that he was on an airplane flight and suddenly the plane lost power and it, it was dropping very quickly and uh, even though even a 747 can, can uh, glide for uh, 150 miles before it touches down. But anyway, he, he's going to this precipitative dive and he said everybody was screaming in terror and he says as his plane was descending rapidly, I stood up and I rebuked the devil and the plane righted itself. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in clear air turbulence before, but let me tell you, if you stand up, you'll be laying up against the ceiling. 
The G-forces are so powerful, you'll probably break your neck. 14 people a year die because they're not wearing their seatbelts, and they hit clear air turbulence. The plane drops 5,000 feet, and they're stuck up against the ceiling and many times having injuries and even death. They don't tell you that when you buy your ticket, but it's true. (laughs) And so the whole point, as I'm listening to this, I'm saying, this is physically impossible. This, this, is, this is impossibility. I know he would probably come back and say, well, that's the whole thing. I was so powerful in the Holy Spirit. And my only response is, can you do it again right now? I mean, you know. But I think it's those kind of things that, uh, that they seek to exploit. They give these false, exaggerated testimonies about how God move, moved. They'll talk about the amazing miracles that have taken place, but when you try to quantify them, as one group of, uh, of pastors did, they tried to get one of these faith healers to quantify, just to give them a list, the names and the identities of people that they could confirm had been healed. And they'd always say the same thing, well, we don't really keep those kind of records because we're too busy doing miracles of healing. Okay. But John again warns, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Don't be naive and just simply take the word of the individual, but test it to see whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. These false prophets are given various descriptive names, even nefarious titles, if you will, because of the nature of what they're doing. To the Galatians, Paul called them false brethren. Interesting, because again, Jesus said these are people who are among you. Paul said they're also among you. They're not people like we talked about Sri, uh, the, the, the Muslim or uh, the Hindu uh, uh, teacher that I talked about, who is clearly a Hindu, not a teaching, and teaching a false doctrine. They're not people on the outside of the church. He said these are people who are in the church, they're under the roof of the church. They're basically, you look at him saying they're a believer, but he says, no, they're false believers. He goes on to say they're false apostles. In other words, there are people who have high-profile leadership positions in the church who are not true servants of God. He doesn't comment whether they're saved or not, but it brings it certainly into question. He adds, thirdly, that they're deceitful workers. In other words, they're very sly and cunning and clever by what they do and how they do it. I'll never forget the, watching the video of the a faith healer who came up to a man and there was a, on his, next to him uh, on the inside of the aisle was a, 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 um, a cane. And he walked up to the man and he says, I'm going to heal you now in the name of Jesus. And he said, stand up. And the man stood up and everybody began to applaud because this man who had, they assumed had come in with a cane. And he prayed for the man and that he be healed. And he said, now run up and down the aisle. And the guy's running up and down the aisle. And everybody's hooting and hollering and getting all excited because this man has been healed. And he says, he sat down. He says, and he reaches over and grabs the man cane and says, you're not going to need this anymore. Afterwards, they were interviewing the man who had been healed. And the cane belonged to the woman sitting next to him. And they said, well, why didn't you say something? He said, well, it was just an honest mistake, and I didn't want to harm the faith of other people. Believe me, friends, you never harm people's faith by telling them the truth. You don't harm them by being truthful and honest. And that pretending, and, and it's, it's a, some of these guys are very, very skilled at it. When Peter Popoff was discovered having a transmitter in his ear that his wife would interview people outside before the service, and then she would tell him through this, inner, this monitor in his ear 
about people. He said, the Lord just showed me there's somebody and she'd give the name and you live at so-and-so and so-and-so and you have this ailment. Why don't you come up and be healed? People, think, people are amazed. He's got this word of knowledge until the LA Times reporter got a, transfer, a receiver and he could hear the conversations and recorded him. Well, he had to step out of ministry for a few years because it was such a scandal. But he's back working the same routine, doing the same thing because memories are short in people. And of course, we're always told, don't question the Lord's anointed. Can I question his transmitter? I just, I mean, is that part of the anointing? But you see, he even goes and in, in, in John, uh, John even refers to them as deceivers. And the Greek word that here literally means a mind misleader, people who mislead you in your thinking. They, they seduce you into believing something that's not true. They're both, as Paul explained to Timothy, he said in 2 Timothy 3, they're deceiving and they're being deceived. In other words, not only do they lie, but they also wholeheartedly believe the lie that they're telling. And I know oftentimes people saying, well, they're sincere, but yes, but they're sincerely wrong. They're sincerely wrong, and that's what makes it so difficult. The hardest thing, the easiest lie to believe is the one that's told with complete sincerity. If I tell you something and I believe it's true, then that seems to be true because you wouldn't say it unless you believe it. But if you say you're, tell yourself the same thing over and over again, it's only a matter of time before you'll start believing it's true, even though initially you didn't believe it's true. That's why I often talk when people bring up the argument of, well, they're sincere. I want to point out to them, Adolf Hitler was sincere. Seriously, he was very, he very much believed everything he said. Was he wrong? I hope you'll agree with me he was wrong. But the point is that sincerity is not the measure of whether something is true or not. There is an objective reality, particularly when we use the word of God, by which we can measure the true or falseness of something. But what makes these individuals, I think, most insidious is that they are pretenders who come into the church and suddenly become viewed as being part of the church. They're, in the New Living Translations of the passage we read said, they're disguised as harmless sheep, but are really wolves that will tear you apart. In Galatians, Paul said, they're false brethren who infiltrated our ranks. They gain access to the church and even to church leadership to spy out the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves to become enslaved to them, that our loyalty would shift from Christ to following them. And increasingly I'm seeing this in the church where people have a, a profound loyalty to a particular pastor or teacher or prophet or apostle and as if they are without sin and without failure. And when they do something that seems to be wrong, we quickly dismiss it as just being a slip of the tongue or a slip of the pen although sometimes it covers an hour long or many pages. Peter put it this way, that with cunning words, they'll make merchandise out of you. The word merchandise is where we get our word emporium, basically a, a marketplace, a, a place of doing business. Many translate simply, they'll, they'll exploit you and use your personal, personal gain to give themselves fame and fortune. That, in other words, the church is an easy target if one wants to make a lot of money. Robert Tilton, who famously was eventually driven out of, of the Christian industry because of the exposure by uh, many networks of his uh, duplicitous and dishonest practices, 
basically said in the beginning, he looked at the place where he could make the most money the quickest, and he said, the church is the easy prey. And so he went after the church and made himself a multimillionaire until he was exposed. Now I'm, I'm afraid he's suffering in the Bahamas. But you see, you throw into it that John again adds in, second, in, in the second chapter of his first letter, he said, they went out from us. That's in other words, they, they departed from Orthodox Christianity because they did not belong to us. They were never really part of the church, but they knew how to play the church game. They claim to be ministers of Christ, but in reality, they're not. They, rather, they are, as Paul goes on to explain in 2 Corinthians 11, masquerading as apostles of Christ, that is of God, they're masquerading as God's messengers. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. And he goes on, it is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as the servants of righteousness. Paul's choice of words here, in fact, is, is really important. Because when he wrote in Romans 12 about how he said that we should no longer conform to the world or the pattern of this world, but that we should be transformed by the renewing of our mind, he used this word metamorpho. It literally means when, we, when, the, when, the, when the, the caterpillar or the, the moth is changed into the caterpillar, this idea of a total change of form and substance. It's really the word that we would apply to being born again of the Spirit. That when I have asked Christ into my heart and my body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit, there's a whole new life inside of me. There's a whole new dimension and dynamic that he says in that moment I am changed, that I am metamorphosed, I'm, I'm transformed into the nature of Christ. I have his nature living inside of me. But when he's speaking about the false teachers here, he uses a different word. He used, it's very similar but different. Literally means to change in appearance or in fashion to disguise or masquerade. Theirs is only an outward difference. In other words, they know how to walk the walk, they know how to talk the talk, they know how to manipulate the keyboard to get what they want. But their real inner motivation is what's at issue here. And that becomes very clear when we look further at the things that motivated the life of the Apostle Paul. Now, I went through all of that just to make sure that you were certain that I'm not, you know, overemphasizing this or speaking out, speaking too heavily upon it. Literally, what I've just shown you is this issue is repeated from one end of Matthew to the other end of Revelation. Every single book speaks at some length about the problem. That Paul really had two concerns for the church. One was that the church would preach the gospel, and the second one is that they would be doctrinally honest and true. That they wouldn't be corrupted by false teaching. Because false teaching will lead you away from the truth of God, but the truth of God will lead you closer to God in his will, and we're able to give evidence of our faith. So how do we know the difference between the two? Well, he gives us really two measurements. He says, first of all, by their fruit you will know them. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. The New Testament identifies two kinds of fruit. The first is the spiritual fruit of our lips. Hebrews 13, 15 says, First, the fruit of the lips that confess his name. 
Paul, writing to Timothy, put it this way. He says, be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. That word accurately in the original literally means to cut with a straight line, to cut something straightly, not something that's real, torn or has strange edges, but it's, it's cutting straight to the truth. It's the idea that we dissect and we expound correctly the divine message to teach the truth directly and correctly and ensuring that there's no error in it. Basically, that requires a lot of hard work. So much of sermonizing today in the church is not doing that. It's beginning with an idea, a concept that I want to communicate, and then cherry-picking some passage of the scriptures that I can come throw in here, sprinkle like seasoning over a steak to give it a, a deeper flavor, a more palatable flavor, something that you like. There's a reason why we follow the pattern that we do. We engage in basically verse-by-verse verse exegesis. That means taking the text and drawing out of it what it says. There's another dangerous form that takes place. It's called eisegesis. It's where you take the passage and then you read into it what you want it to say. For example, uh, Bill Johnson is a pastor of Bethel Church, one of the largest churches in America. He teaches that, <laughs> that when the angel of the Lord came to, to Mary and said, Mary, uh, woman favored by God, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you're going to conceive a child. That, and it's going to be Emmanuel, God with us. And then it goes on to say, Mary pondered these things in her heart. Johnson quite creatively says, well, when it says she pondered it, what it's telling us is that by her positive thinking, she created Jesus in her, in her womb. She created it. It doesn't say that, though. It says the Holy Spirit will conceive, but they say, no, she self-conceived Jesus by her pondering, her positive thinking. And then he goes on to point out that Jesus was not divine. He left his divinity in heaven when he was on earth. He was merely a man, and because he was merely a man able to do the miracles that he did, you too, who are merely a man, can also do exactly the same kind of miracles. It sounds like a subtle thing, and I suspect there are some of you saying, I'm not quite sure I see the distinction. That's my concern. Because you've essentially, when you believe that, you have rebirthed and re-resurrected some of the oldest heresies that the church dealt with in the first three centuries of their history. It's a, it's a, it's a total heresy. It denies the divine nature. See, what the church has asserted, what scriptures testify is that Jesus is, uh, and the Father and the Son are one, that he is God, he was both God and he was man. That when Jesus became a man, he was still fully God as well as being fully man. This is one of the, really the first or the second major heretical challenge that the church faced in the early days. Now the Gnostics that Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code talk about went the other extreme. The Da Vinci Code and, and the Gnostic writers who he's supposedly quoting, they taught that Jesus was always God, never man that he simply had the appearance of a body, but he didn't really have a body. That's probably why John makes such an effort to point out in both the gospel and his letters that the word of God, which we saw with our eyes, we touched with our hands. I mean, he was flesh and bone. When Jesus appeared after his resurrection, he said, behold, flesh and bone. He was a, had a literal physical body, and yet the Gnostics taught it was just an apparition. 
That's the same thing that Islam. Islam basically teaches the same thing because the Islamic teachings were taken from the Gnostic teachings that had become prevalent in Egypt and most of the Middle East during this period of time. And it creates a whole different sense. So that if Jesus didn't have a body like me, what does his death on the cross really mean? When Je if Jesus didn't have a body like me, what does it mean that, that he denied himself and picked up the cross and followed the will of the Father? It means really nothing because he didn't have to deny himself. On the other hand, if he's not God, his death is no more different than mine or yours. These things are maybe difficult to comprehend because they're talking about things that are way above our personal pay grade or intellectual capacity. But nonetheless, they're stated so clearly in the scriptures that we teach them because it declares that these are the sources of truth. But you see, the second thing that we'll look at in a moment is not just the fruit of their lips, but also the fruit of their lives. That's an important aspect of this thing. What, what is their life like? How do they behave? But the battle cry of, of the Christian reformers, which formed the Protestant church of which, which we are the, the inheritors, had one simple phrase in Latin called sola scriptura, and it means by scripture alone. Scripture alone is the authority for faith and the practice of the Christian life. We don't look to anything else. Everything is measured up against the word of God. And it's not surprising that Satan has had unending assaults against the scriptures and to dissuade people from trusting in it because if you start questioning and doubting and not submitting to the Bible, then you can begin to create your own life or as Paul warned, you can begin to find teachers who tickle your ears and you can create theologies that enable you to pursue your own desires all the while doing it in the name of Jesus, even though Jesus wouldn't want his name on that. It reminds me of a guy I heard one time, he was writing a song and he said, you know, began to share it at one of our fellowships and he says, this is a song the Lord gave me. I've always been kind of outspoken about stuff and I said, after listening to the song, I said, I don't think you should blame Jesus for that song. I mean, I, 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 I get it, it's, it's, it's your song and you wrote it, but I don't think that was divinely inspired, although I'm sure that you were quite inspired. But the whole point is, in short, our words, especially the things we teach about the Word of God, need to be conformed to the New Testament standard of what the Bible calls truth as found within the scriptures. In fact, in, in Titus, Jesus says, or excuse me, Paul says to Titus, and, and he's speaking about pastors and teachers and apostles and prophets, he says, they must hold firmly the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine. The, the, that's a Pauline phrase, which literally means healthy doctrine or teachings that lead to spiritual health by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Five times Paul uses that phrase of healthy teaching, things that are good and build up the church. Notice when it comes to doctrine or theology that Paul never mentions anything about feelings or personal experiences. This is because Christianity is first and foremost what we refer to as a propositional faith. That is, its teachings consist of statements that express a concept that is either true or false. 
You see, the Bible's really clear. It says there is an absolute reality, both physically and morally as well. These things aren't separately. I mean, we understand that if I jump off a high place, that gravity is going to rule. I may be able to get a few inches by flapping my wings really hard, but eventually gravity is going to win, and we recognize that, that force of the universe. And the only way an airplane can defy gravity or rocket is by using a greater force to thrust it into the sky and then hopefully glide carefully back to Earth called a safe landing. By the way, the only time you should ever be afraid on an airplane is the first 24 seconds and the last eight seconds take off and landing. <laughs> so if you're a nervous flyer, just watch your watch. After 24 seconds, if you're still alive, you're good. <laughs> That's why turbulence isn't scary. It's, you know, when you're 30 or 40,000 feet in the air, you're safe for a long time. They can have a lot of problems before they have to worry about you. Anyway, am I making everybody feel better now? <laughs> But most importantly, it's saying that when we read the Bible, it's, it, it divides everything in these, these contexts. It's either true or it's false. There is no real gray zone in here. Although there are gray issues in life because of the complexity of our life, and it may take discernment, and sometimes we offer two simplistic explanations for some of the more complex situations in life. I, I understand all of that. But at the end of the day, there's, there are things that are true, good, and there's things who are false and evil. There's things who are right and there's things who are wrong. And what the Bible is designed to do is guide me in that path which is the true, the good, and the right and help me avoid that broader path of things that are wrong, false, and untrue. And that's a very simple distinction because even when you and I wrestle with questions about what's the right thing to do, we are in a sense honoring God in that moment when we say, Lord, Lead me in the paths of your righteousness because right now I'm betwixt two issues and I'm not sure which one is the right one. Your will be done in my life. And just that acknowledgement puts you on the side of truth, good, and righteousness if you are intending as he opens your eyes to submit to that truth. But as Christians, we are simply saying there is absolute truth. Now, what's happening in our world as a whole is people saying, well, truth is relative. And it's like, uh, which is kind of a crazy concept because I love what Rabbi Zacharias once said. He was debating a philosopher, uh, a Christian philosopher on a university campus, and the gentleman said, well, Ravi, what you don't understand is in America, we have live in a world that's either or, but in the East, it's if and. It's if and, or and and but. And he said, well, let me tell you this. Even in India... When we cross the street, we look two ways because it's either me or the bus. It's not me and the bus. <laughs> it's either one. And that's where the real world really does confront these fantasies that people create where when we, people say to you, well, you've got your truth and I've got my truth, but if these truths disagree, that's not possible. We can both be wrong, but we both can't be right because they don't agree. One of us is of the truth, one of us is a falsehood. And that's why Jesus put such insistence upon determining, settling in our own minds, what is the truth of God, especially as it's revealed to us in Scripture. That's why Peter also put it that it's not a matter of private interpretation. 
He said, above all, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of the scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. It's not that Jeremiah was looking at his situation and prophesied the things because, well, as if he were saying, well, that's how it looks to me. It reminds me of the cartoon I saw years ago of a, a pastor in the elder board looking at a chart where the attendance is going down, 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 down. And one of the elders says, you know, it probably would help if you didn't end every sermon by saying, but then again, what do I know? The whole point is that we don't want to know what your opinion is. We want to know what the Word of God says. That's why we read it and we follow it and we seek to know it that it might be the guide of our life, as David said in Psalm 119, that it could be the light to our path, the lamp that guides our feet, leading us into those places where he wants us. You see, this idea also includes us that there's no place for new novel revelations that people like Johnson or Benny Hinn and Ken Copeland and a whole score of other ones put out there and talk about this is new truth, that we're under a new dispensation, there's a new revelation and so forth. Because what I have found is new truth is nothing more than the old lie wrapped in a different garment. Because every heresy that came in the first six centuries of the church has simply been repeated and repackaged over and over and over again even to the present time. There's no place for the many novel interpretations that are beginning to proliferate, especially within the charismatic movement. In some ways, I actually consider myself a charismatic. I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I believe in speaking in tongues. I believe in miracles. I believe in healings and all of those things. I don't think they ceased with the first century because for one simple reason, I see absolutely no place in the Bible where it ever says that. And I think that some teachers have been even Conservative teachers have been in error by actually twisting certain texts to try to prove that those things ceased. I don't believe that. I still pray for people believing that God's going to heal if he wants to heal them, but he may move in different ways. But you see, the whole foundation of the Protestant Reformation was not based upon feelings. It was not based upon personal revelations. It wasn't based upon visions or even experiences, but it was based upon absolute unerring truth of Scripture. Again, sola scriptura. In fact, four times in the Bible we're told not to mess with Scripture. In Deuteronomy 4.2 he said, do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it. In Deuteronomy 12.32, do, do all I command you, do not add to it or take away from it. Proverbs 36, Solomon said, do not add to his words or he will prove you a liar. And of course, many of us are familiar with Revelation 18 where he says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Even in the Old Testament, it was the fruit of a prophet's lips not signs, wonders, prophecies, and miracles that were to be the true test of a prophet. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 13, the first five verses. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, in other words, he says this is going to happen and it actually happens. Most people say, well, that therefore must be God because he said it was going to happen and it actually happened. 
He's, and he says to you, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow, him you must revere, keep his commands and obey him, serve him and hold fast to him, that the prophet or dreamer must be put to death. Now, here's interesting. Jesus, in Matthew 24, offers a similar warning where he simply says in verse 25, false Christs, false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. You see, what he essentially said in Deuteronomy, and I think again here in Matthew 24, was that just because somebody can give you what you want, even a healing doesn't mean they're of God if the intention is going to get you to walk away from the intimate personal relationship of Jesus Christ. Because in the end, God does miracles. I mean, this last week for my wife and I was really a special week in that one regard because there are certain things that we have been praying for probably over a year and asking God to, to take care of and address and deal. And in rapid fire succession within a few days, God began to answer one of those prayers right after another, even one that was just so impossible, and yet God in his ability to change the world did that. I, I, it's a wonderful thing. It's an exciting thing. But the simple fact is, what does it make me want to do? It makes me want to praise him and to pray to him and trust him and worship him, to give God the glory not the guy who's waving his coat, blowing on you, and says he has hot hands. You know, he's just a man. And if he draws attention to himself, he errs. Billy Graham said early on in his ministry, right after the L.A. revival, he said there are three things that a man of God should never touch. The gals, the gold, and the glory. And every man I've ever seen or woman who's fallen in ministry has touched one of those things, usually starting with the glory. They start taking the glory upon themselves as if they are, as Elimus claimed to be, the great power of God. And you understand that that kind of claim, that kind of assertion has come from the heretics, from the false prophets, the false teachers who said, see how powerful I am and what I can do. Let me just simply say, the whole idea of holding an arena-like event for healing signs and miracles and advertising, promising in advance that that's what you're going to get, to me, is an indication of falsehood. What you're looking at is a staged event. You don't find any place in the scriptures where there was ever a staged event. It was spontaneous as far as human observance can come. But here's my weakness. I'm using the Bible to examine these events that take place. And I could go on, but you don't want me to. <laughs> Simply put, if it's not supported by the scripture, it's not of God. If it's not of God, then it is of the devil. This is the first test of a true teacher or a pastor or prophet or even a self-designated apostle. They accurately present the truth of Scripture, not with some kind of funny playing around with it to make it say something it does not. The second thing I mentioned, aside from the fruit of their lips, which is the most obvious, is, is the fruit of their lives, of their character. Galatians 5, 22 says in 23 that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
self-control. Those are great measurements, and none of us does any of those things perfectly. And when, we, when we're not walking in faithfulness or goodness or gentleness or self-control, we have to admit, I'm following the urgings of my fleshly nature. I'm not submitting myself to the leading of the Holy Spirit. But when your life becomes characterized by those works of the flesh that he describes, when that becomes the predominant philosophy, well, then you know that something is wrong. But Paul probably described it in a practical way that most of us can grasp in describing his own ministry, his own ethic by which he ministered to the churches. When he was heading to Jerusalem, he stopped to visit with the elders of Ephesus. And it was kind of a farewell message. And he says this to him. You know how I have lived. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. I have declared men must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus. I am going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prisons and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race, complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Basically, what he was reiterating is the very thing that Jesus said that was required of those who want to follow Jesus. He said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. What I find in these prosperity teachings, the health and wealth teachings, is there's little of nothing about denying yourself. Rather, it's visualizing your highest success and going after it. There's nothing about suffering for Christ by carrying the cross of Christ, and there certainly is nothing about just simply following Jesus wherever that will lead. You see, false teachers and heresy has always been part of Americans' religious landscape but they have never been the mainstream of our landscape until now. Why do I say that? Well, recently I was just doing background research on the 20 largest churches in America. And what surprised me is only two of those 20 would be what I'd call orthodox uh, and biblical churches. 90% of those churches promote a Christianized version of this new age occult practice popularly known as the law of attraction. If you don't know what the law of attraction means, it basically, I've mentioned it, touched on it briefly, it says that your thoughts determine your experience. So Mary determined her pregnancy by thinking about being pregnant, not because the Holy Spirit miraculously burst something inside of her, according to these teachers. Going on, he says, by focusing on positive or negative thoughts, people can bring positive or negative experiences into their life. Don't say anything negative, because if you say it, you'll make it happen. Now, you may wonder, how do they wrap that into Christianity? It's very clever. You see, they say God was the Word of God, and God spoke by His Word and created the universe by His Word. When we were born again, we became small versions of God. And so because we are now his sons and daughters, we also have that same creator power in us. So what we speak creates what we get. So if you have a negative attitude and you're just a you know, negative Nancy, then you're going you're gonna to make negative things in your life. That's why negative things happen. Here's the scary thing. 
To some degree, that's truth. Well, if you're really negative and you have no friends, look in the mirror. Nobody wants to be brought down. There's no advantage of just being a negative person. But this carries it far beyond the way that you affect people around you. It carries it down to you actually are responsible for your lifestyle by whether you believe God can give you better and more. And it falls into this really haphazard place of saying, how do you find your best life now? <laughs> we find this idea expressed certainly in occult writings like The Secret, which was a runaway bestseller and many Christians were reading it. How about The Prayer of Jabez? where Wilkinson takes this obscure little passage about Jabez wanting to expand his borders and then extrapolates, and I say, extrapolates out and teaches in the book, if you simply repeat that prayer for yourself for 29 days, it will transform your world. And you will begin to see your borders expand. And it's basically the same old, what you speak is what you get. The problem is that the most recent example of what is Joel Osteen's Your Best Life Now. Was, I think John MacArthur made an interesting observation about the title of that book. He says, if your best life now is here, that probably means you're going to hell. You see, my best life is in heaven. <laughs> it's not here. And I, as funny as that may be or clever as that may seem, that is very insightful because it's talking about not eternity and is not pointing your eyes upon Christ where we're told to look up and hope for our redemption. He says he will appear the second time in the end of Paul, to Paul's second letter to Timothy. He will appear a second time to those who love his appearing. But if my best life is here and it's down, downhill after that, I don't want him to appear. I just want to continue on the road I'm in of getting better, better, bigger, better, and more. But interestingly, Here's a man who is the pastor of the largest church in America. 42,000 people attend every Sunday morning and has covered the widest watched TV broadcast around the world. Literally millions upon millions wait to watch his teaching every week. And it's interesting, he has smooth words. But listen to what he wrote in his signature book, Your Best Life Now. Listen to how he describes this. He says, anyone can create by dreams and desires what he desires. I create by my dreams and my desires. Not by prayer, but by my dreams and my desires, I can create whatever I dream. If you develop an image of success, health, wealth, abundance, joy, peace, happiness, nothing on earth will be able to hold those things from you. You were born to win, born for great, earthly greatness, born to live in abundance. You were born to be happy, healthy, and whole. Get your thinking positive, and he will bring your desires to pass. Words release your power. Words give life to your dreams. Now, not only do I have problems with that, and there's so many Bible passages that come to my mind that says, but that's not what Scripture says. In fact, we started with the Sermon on the Mount. When he said, blessed are the poor, <laughs> blessed are those who mourn. How does that fit into this passage or his quote? It, it runs diametric to the Beatitudes where the opening message of Jesus is calling upon his church and how we're called to live. And what's tragic is millions of people who are professing Christians, 
It just goes right over the top of their head, I suspect, because they don't really spend much time in the Word. But what's even more troubling in the entire book, there's not one mention of the cross of Christ. There's not one mention of repentance from sin. There's not one mention of sacrificial living, not one mention of suffering for the sake of the gospel and denying ourselves, picking up our cross and following him. And yet it is probably still and has been from its inception one of the most popular and widely read books in Christianity today. And I'm just going to go on record. It's rank heresy of the worst kind. And the failure to see that is, is staggering. Staggering. When I was a little boy, a friend of mine took me to his, uh, uh, a VBS at his church. And, uh, you know, you got to keep in mind, I, I was kind of a blank slate. I didn't really have any kind of like Christian preparation. I didn't know what was going on. But they had this evangelist there. That's what they called him. And, and that was the first time I ever heard anybody be called evangelist. But anyway, this guy got up there and he did a neat trick. He had two silver dollars in his hand. And he dropped one on the, on the table and it just cling, 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 cling. And then he dropped the other one and it went clunk. And he had to come up and look at them. They looked exactly like, but he said, what was the difference between the two? And he said, one you could clearly tell by the, the ring. It rings true. The counterfeit doesn't ring true. And that's the whole point is, the gospel, when we hear it, rings true. It doesn't mean it rings true in the sense that it always tells me what I want to see or hear. In fact, because I battle sin daily, as you do, whether you know it or not, I find that when I read the Word of God, I'm constantly reminded of stuff that I need to confess as sin in my life. Petty little things that can grow into big things in your life. But that's that's what the Word of God does. It, it's a sword that divides between the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. It shows us deeper things in ourselves than we often want to admit. But when somebody is following the Word of God, their life has that ring of truth to it. And you don't have to necessarily know all the details. My pastor used to always say, teach people sound doctrine, and once they know it, they will immediately recognize when it's not sound doctrine. He says they'll just simply say, you know, I was listening to this, and there's just something that isn't right. So our idea is to be simple concerning evil, but wise concerning things that are good. Charles Spurgeon once said, that very church which the world likes best is sure to be that which God abhors. The one that the world likes best is the one that God abhors. Paul said to the Corinthians in the 11th chapter of the second letter, he said, I am afraid that exactly as the snake seduced Eve with his smooth patter, you're being lured away from the simple purity of your love for Christ. You're being lured away from the simple purity of just loving Christ. Not loving him because of what he's given you or done for you, but just loving him. Not loving him when the, you know, the finances are good or, loving, or not loving him when the finances are bad. My pastor once told, told me a story of a, a lady in his church who had come to believe a lot of these faith doctrines, word of faith, dominion theology. It's got all sorts of different names for it. Name it and claim it. 
or as I call it, blab it and grab it. <laughs> Her husband became sick and they prayed for his healing and she brought in all these faith healers to pray for him and he eventually passed away and as he was, as they were taking his, his body to the cemetery after the funeral to bury him, she was carrying his shoes because I don't know if you were aware of this but when they put you in the casket, they generally don't put your shoes on you, you know. That way they can pass them on to me. But, so she brought his shoes and socks with her because she said when Jesus raises him, he's not going to want to go home barefoot. And they dropped the casket in the ground and she waited and stayed even until they closed, the, ca- closed the, the hold up on top of him. And then she had a complete, total emotional breakdown. Did she have faith? Amazing faith. She believed with all of her heart. And yet oftentimes when you sit under these teachers and you pray for something and believe for something and it doesn't happen, it's your fault because you just didn't have enough faith. And yet what's really interesting, before the HIPAA laws became terribly strict, you were able to get a certain degree of these people's medical records. And you discover that these guys have all sorts of surgeries. They get cataracts. They get hernias. They get rotator cuff injuries. They <laughs> and, you know, they don't come to church wearing a sling. They go away in reclusion because they're going to fast and pray and, and <laughs> because they don't want to walk out in a wheelchair. But I'll never forget Johnny Erickson, Tata Erickson, speaking in a Billy Graham crusade many years ago. And she talks about, and if you've read her testimony, she talked about the faith healers coming in and praying her and saying, if you just have enough faith, you can be healed from your quadriplegia. And she said, more than anything else in the world, I wanted to be able to get up and walk. But she said, it never happened. And she said, as she was sitting there in her wheelchair in the center of that stage, sharing with the congregation, she says, if I could walk today, it would be one of the most wonderful things I could experience, but it's probably never gonna happen. But I also know this, if my neck hadn't been broken in that diving accident, I wouldn't be here on this stage today talking to you about Jesus and what a wonderful Savior he is. In her weakness, God had manifested his strength. That runs counter to that whole way of thinking. Will there be other false theologies? I think so. Rabbi Zachariah related in a, in a, in a, discussion where he, uh, a panel discussion with R.C. Sproul and, and others. And he said that he said, he said, I had, my wife and I had dinner with uh, this gentleman who says he has the largest church in America and speaks to more people every day, every Sunday than anybody else in the world. He says, I don't want to mention his name. And right at that moment, your best life now pop, popped up on the screen. <laughs> and it became obvious as he went on that he was talking about talking about uh, Joel Steen. And he said, Joel mentioned to me as we were having dinner, he says, I've been meeting with certain Muslim scholars and I'm amazed how similar Islam is to Christianity. And Rabbi said, my wife, who's a very gracious woman, almost choked on her chicken. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, Joel, they're just like Christians except they don't believe that Jesus is God They don't believe Jesus died on the cross. They don't believe that we have the Bible. They don't believe that even our New Testament is the same one that was originally written. 
and they don't believe that we're going to heaven. But aside from that, we're just exactly the same. And I'm sitting here saying, here's a man who's leading a congregation of just the church alone of 42,000 people doesn't have enough theological sophistication to know the difference. Should never be in that role. But guess what? He never went, he never studied theology. He studied TV and how to use it. And he's been very effective. Enough of the telling. Many people I've talked to who have known him said he's probably the nicest guy you'll ever meet. Charming beyond belief. But he's wrong. But he's wrong. My great gift is, I tell the truth, I've never been charming. <laughs> well, let's pray. <laughs> Father God, I pray in the name of Jesus that your people can hear this with the right spirit and the right heart. I've wrestled over this message all week, Lord. I, I struggled about do I name names and do I identify the guilty? And yet I find, Lord, that not only did Paul do that in his letters, but also many times people just don't get it and understand what you're talking about until you get really specific. Whether these different individuals know you or not is in your hands. I don't want to judge that. I pray and believe that they're not false brethren. They're just deceived and have come to believe in their deception. But I pray, Father, that you would give us the wisdom to rightly divide, to cut a straight line between truth and falsehood, to not zig and zag and play fast and loose with your truth but recognize that it's absolute and it's eternal and you've called us to strive to live within it. That that's the narrow path, the narrow gate that we follow you through because it's the word of your truth. We ask you for this help, Lord, in Jesus' name.